Section 13 of The Captain of the Pole Star and Other Tales by Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. That Little Square Box, Part 1. All aboard, said the captain. All aboard, sir, said the mate. Then stand by to let her go. It was nine o'clock on a Wednesday morning. The good ship Spartan was lying off Boston Quay with her cargo under hatches, her passengers shipped, and everything prepared for a start. The warning whistle had been sounded twice. The final bell had been rung. Her bowsprit was turned towards England, and the hiss of escaping steam showed that all was ready for her run of three thousand miles. She strained at the warps that held her like a greyhound at its leash. I have the misfortune to be a very nervous man. A sedentary literary life has helped to increase the morbid love of solitude which, even in my boyhood, was one of my distinguishing characteristics. As I stood upon the quarter-deck of the transatlantic steamer, I bitterly cursed the necessity which drove me back to the land of my forefathers. The shouts of the sailors, the rattle of the cordage, the farewells of my fellow-passengers, and the cheers of the mob, each and all, jarred upon my sensitive nature. I felt sad, too, an indescribable feeling, as of some impending calamity, seemed to haunt me. The sea was calm and the breeze light. There was nothing to disturb the equanimity of the most confirmed of landsmen, yet I felt as if I stood upon the verge of a great though indefinable danger. I have noticed that such presentiments occur often in men of my peculiar temperament, and that they are not uncommonly fulfilled. There is a theory that it arises from a species of second sight, a subtle spiritual communication with the future. I well remember that Herr Rumner, the eminent spiritualists, remarked on one occasion that I was one of the most sensitive subjects as regards supernatural phenomena that he had ever encountered in the whole of his wide experience. Be that as it may, I certainly felt far from happy as I threaded my way among the weeping, cheering groups which dotted the white decks of the good ship Spartan. Had I known the experience which awaited me in the course of the next twelve hours, I should even then, at the last moment, have sprung upon the shore and made my escape from the accursed vessel. Time's up, said the captain, closing his chronometer with a snap and replacing it in his pocket. Time's up, said the mate. There was a last wail from the whistle, a rush of friends and relatives upon the land. One warp was loosened. The gangway was being pushed away when there was a shout from the bridge and two men appeared running rapidly down the quay. They were waving their hands and making frantic gestures apparently with the intention of stopping the ship. Look sharp, shouted the crowd. Hold hard, cried the captain. Ease her, stop her, up with the gangway. And the two men sprang aboard just as the second warp parted, and a convulsive throb of the engine shot us clear of the shore. There was a cheer from the deck, another from the quay, a mighty fluttering of handkerchiefs, and the great vessel plowed its way out of the harbor and steamed grandly across the placid bay. 
we were fairly started upon our fortnight's voyage. There was a general dive among the passengers in quest of berths and luggage, while a popping of corks in the saloon proved that more than one bereaved traveler was adopting artificial means for drowning the pangs of separation. I glanced round the deck and took a running inventory of my companion de voyage. They presented the usual types met with upon these occasions. There was no striking face among them. I speak as a connoisseur, for faces are a specialty of mine. I pounce upon a characteristic feature as a botanist does on a flower, and bear it away with me to analyze at my leisure, and classify and label it in my little anthropological museum. There was nothing worthy of me here. Twenty types of young Americans going to Europe, a few respectable middle-aged couples as an antidote, a sprinkling of clergymen and professional men, young ladies, bagmen, British exclusives, and all the ola podria of an ocean-going steamer. I turned away from them and gazed back at the receding shores of America, and as a cloud of remembrances rose before me, my heart warmed towards the land of my adoption. A pile of portmanteaus and luggage chanced to be lying on one side of the deck, awaiting their turn to be taken below. With my usual love for solitude, I walked behind these, and sitting on a coil of rope between them and the vessel's side, I indulged in a melancholy reverie. I was aroused from this by a whisper behind me. Here's a quiet place, said the voice. Sit down and we can talk it over in safety. Glancing through a chink between two colossal chests, I saw that the passengers who had joined us at the last moment were standing at the other side of the pile. They had evidently failed to see me as I crouched in the shadow of the boxes. The one who had spoken was a tall and very thin man with a blue-black beard and a colorless face. His manner was nervous and excited. His companion was a short, plethoric little fellow with a brisk and resolute air. He had a cigar in his mouth and a large ulster slung over his left arm. They both glanced round uneasily, as if to ascertain whether they were alone. This is just the place, I heard the other say. They sat down on a bale of goods with their backs turned towards me, and I found myself, much against my will, playing the unpleasant part of eavesdropper to their conversation. Well, Mueller, said the taller of the two, we got it aboard right enough. Yes, assented the man, whom he had addressed as Mueller. It's safe aboard. It was rather a near go. It was that, Flanagan. It wouldn't have done to have missed a ship. No, it would have put our plans out. Ruined them entirely, said the little man and puffed furiously at a cigar for some minutes. "'I got it here,' he said at last. "'Let me see it. Is no one looking? No, they're nearly all below.' "'We can't be too careful when so much is at stake,' said Mueller, as he uncoiled the ulster which hung over his arm, and disclosed a dark object which he laid upon the deck. One glance at it was enough to cause me to spring to my feet with an exclamation of horror. Luckily, they were so engrossed in the matter on hand 
that neither of them observed me. Had they turned their heads, they would infallibly have seen my pale face glaring at them over the pile of boxes. From the first moment of their conversation, a horrible misgiving had come over me. It seemed more than confirmed as I gazed at what lay before me. It was a little square box made of some dark wood and ribbed with brass. I suppose it was about the size of a cubic foot. It reminded me of a pistol case, only it was decidedly higher. There was an appendage to it, however, on which my eyes were riveted, and which suggested the pistol itself rather than its receptacle. This was a trigger-like arrangement upon the lid, to which a coil of string was attached. Beside this trigger there was a small square aperture through the wood. The tall man, Flanagan, as his companion called him, applied his eye to this and peered in for several minutes with an expression of intense anxiety upon his face. It seems right enough, he said at last. I tried not to shake it, said his companion. Such delicate things need delicate treatment. Put in some of the needful, Mueller. The shorter man fumbled in his pocket for some time and then produced a small paper packet. He opened this and took out of it a handful of whitish granules which he poured down through the hole. A curious clicking noise followed from the inside of the box, and both the men smiled in a satisfied way. "'Nothing much wrong there,' said Flanagan. "'Right as a trivet,' answered his companion. "'Look out! Here's someone coming. Take it down to our berth. It wouldn't do to have anyone suspecting what our game is, or worse still, have them fumbling with it and letting it off by mistake. Well, it would come to the same, whoever let it off, said Mueller. They'd be rather astonished if they pulled the trigger, said the taller, with a sinister laugh. Ha ha, fancy their faces. It's not a bad bit of workmanship, I flatter myself. No, said Mueller, I hear it is your own design, every bit of it, isn't it? Yes, the spring and the sliding shutter are my own. We should take out a patent. And the two men laughed again with a cold, harsh laugh, as they took up the little brass-bound package and concealed it in Mueller's voluminous overcoat. "'Come down and we'll stow it in our berth,' said Flanagan. "'We won't need it until tonight, and it will be safe there.' His companion assented, and the two men went arm-in-arm arm along the deck and disappeared down the hatchway, bearing the mysterious little box away with them. The last words I heard were a muttered injunction from Flanagan to carry it carefully and avoid knocking it against the bulwarks. How long I remained sitting on that coil of rope, I shall never know. The horror of the conversation I had just overheard was aggravated by the first sinking qualms of seasickness. The long roll of the Atlantic was beginning to assert itself over both ship and passengers. I felt prostrated in mind and in body and fell into a state of collapse, from which I was finally aroused by the hearty voice of our worthy quartermaster. "'Do you mind moving out of that, sir?' he said. "'We want to get this lumber cleared off the deck.' His bluff manner and ruddy, healthy face seemed to be a positive insult to me in my present condition. Had I been a courageous or a muscular man, 
I could have struck him. As it was, I treated the honest sailor to a melodramatic scowl, which seemed to cause him no small astonishment, and strode past him to the other side of the deck. Solitude was what I wanted, solitude in which I could brood over the frightful crime which was being hatched before my very eyes. One of the quarter-boats was hanging rather low down upon the davits. An idea struck me, and climbing on the bulwarks, I stepped into the empty boat and lay down in the bottom of it. Stretched on my back, with nothing but the blue sky above me and the occasional view of the mizzen, as the vessel rolled, I was at least alone with my sickness and my thoughts. I tried to recall the words which had been spoken in the terrible dialogue I had overheard. Would they admit of any construction but the one which stared me in the face? My reason forced me to confess that they would not. I endeavored to array the various facts which formed the chain of circumstantial evidence, and to find a flaw in it. But no, not a link was missing. There was the strange way in which our passengers had come aboard, enabling them to evade any examination of their luggage. The very name of Flanagan smacked of Fenianism, while Mueller suggested nothing but socialism and murder. Then their mysterious manner, their remark that their plans would have been ruined had they missed the ship, their fear of being observed, last but not least, the clenching evidence in the production of the little square box with a trigger and their grim joke about the face of the man who should let it off by mistake. Could these facts lead to any conclusion other than that they were the desperate emissaries of some body, political or otherwise, who intended to sacrifice themselves, their fellow passengers, and the ship in one great holocaust? The whitish granules which I had seen one of them pour into the box formed no doubt a fuse or train for exploding it. I myself had heard a sound come from it which might have emanated from some delicate piece of machinery. But what did they mean by their allusion to tonight? Could it be that they contemplated putting their horrible design into execution on the very first evening of our voyage? The mere thought of it sent a cold shudder over me and made me for a moment superior even to the agonies of seasickness. I have remarked that I am a physical coward. I am a moral one also. It is seldom that the two defects are united to such a degree in the one character. I have known many men who were most sensitive to bodily danger, and yet were distinguished for their independence and strength of their minds. In my own case, however, I regret to say that my quiet and retiring habits had fostered a nervous dread of doing anything remarkable or making myself conspicuous, which exceeded, if possible, my fear of personal peril. An ordinary mortal, placed under the circumstances in which I now found myself, would have gone at once to the captain, confessed his fears, and put the matter into his hands. To me, however, constituted as I am, the idea was most repugnant. The thought of becoming the observed of all observers, cross-questioned by a stranger, and confronted with two desperate conspirators in the character of a denouncer, was hateful to me. Might it not by some remote possibility prove that I was mistaken? 
what would be my feelings if there should turn out to be no grounds for my accusation? No, I would procrastinate. I would keep my eye on the two desperados and dog them at every turn. Anything was better than the possibility of being wrong. Then it struck me that even at that moment some new phase of the conspiracy might be developing itself. The nervous excitement seemed to have driven away my incipient attack of sickness, for I was able to stand up and lower myself from the boat without experiencing any return of it. I staggered along the deck with the intention of descending into the cabin and finding how my acquaintances of the morning were occupying themselves. Just as I had my hand on the companion rail, I was astonished by receiving a hearty slap on the back, which nearly shot me down the steps with more haste than dignity. "'Is that you, Hammond?' said a voice, which I seemed to recognize. "'God bless me,' I said as I turned around. "'It can't be Dick Merton. Why, how are you, old man?' This was an unexpected piece of luck in the midst of my perplexities. Dick was just the man I wanted, kindly and shrewd in his nature, and prompt in his actions. I should have no difficulty in telling him my suspicions, and could rely upon this sound sense to point out the best course to pursue. Since I was a little lad in the second form at Harrow, Dick had been my adviser and protector. He saw at a glance that something had gone wrong with me. Hello, he said in his kindly way. What's put you about, Hammond? You look as white as a sheet. Maldemir, huh? No, not that altogether, I said. Walk up and down with me, Dick. I want to speak to you. Give me your arm. Supporting myself on Dick's stalwart frame, I tottered along by his side. But it was some time before I could muster resolution to speak. Have a cigar, said he, breaking the silence. No, thanks, said I. Dick, we shall all be corpses tonight. That's no reason against you having a cigar now, said Dick in his cool way, but looking hard at me from under his shaggy eyebrows as he spoke. He evidently thought that my intellect was a little gone. No, I continued, it's no laughing matter, and I speak in sober earnestness, I assure you. I have discovered an infamous conspiracy, Dick, to destroy this ship and every soul that is in her. And I then proceeded systematically and in order to lay before him the chain of evidence which I had collected. There, Dick, I said as I concluded, what do you think of that? And above all, what am I to do? To my astonishment, he burst into a hearty fit of laughter. I'd be frightened, he said, if any fellow but you had told me as much. You always had a way, Hammond, of discovering mare's nests. I'd like to see the old traits breaking out again. Do you remember at school how you swore? that there was a ghost in the long room, and how it turned out to be your own reflection in the mirror? Why, man, he continued, what object would anyone have in destroying this ship? We have no great political guns aboard. On the contrary, the majority of the passengers are Americans. Besides, in this sober nineteenth century, the most wholesale murderers stop at including themselves among their victims. Depend upon it, you have misunderstood them and have mistaken a photographic camera or something equally innocent for an infernal machine. 
Nothing of the sort, sir, I said, rather touchily. You will learn at your cost. I fear that I have neither exaggerated nor misinterpreted a word. As to the box, I have certainly never before seen one like it. It contained delicate machinery. Of that I am convinced, from the way in which the men handled it and spoke of it. You'd make out every packet of perishable goods to be a torpedo, said Dick. If that's to be your only test. The man's name was Flanagan, I continued. I don't think that would go very far in a court of law, said Dick. But come, I have finished my cigar. Suppose we go down together and split a bottle of claret, and you can point out these two Orsinis to me if they are still in the cabin. All right, I answered. I am determined not to lose sight of them all day. Don't look hard at them, though, for I don't want them to think that they are being watched. Trust me, said Dick. I will look as unconscious and guileless as a lamb. And with that, we passed down the companion and into the saloon. A good many passengers were scattered about the great central table, some wrestling with refractory carpet bags and rug straps, some having their luncheon and a few reading and otherwise amusing themselves. The objects of our quest were not there. We passed down the room and peered into every berth, but there was no sight of them. Heavens, thought I, perhaps at this very moment they are beneath our feet in the hold or engine room, preparing their diabolical contrivance. It was better to know the worst than to remain in such suspense. Steward said Dick, are there any other gentlemen about? There's two in the smoking room, sir, answered the steward. The smoking room was a little snuggery, luxuriously fitted up and adjoining the pantry. We pushed the door open and entered. A sigh of relief escaped from my bosom. The very first object on which my eyes rested was the cadaverous face of Flanagan, with its hard-set mouth and unwinking eye. His companion sat opposite to him. They were both drinking, and a pile of cards lay upon the table. They were engaged in playing as we entered. I nudged Dick to show him that we had found our quarry, and we sat down beside them with as unconcerned an air as possible. The two conspirators seemed to take little notice of our presence. I watched them both narrowly. The game at which they were playing was Napoleon. Both were adepts at it. And I could not help admiring the consummate nerve of the men who, with such a secret at their hearts, could devote their minds to the manipulating of a long suit or the finessing of a queen. Money changed hands rapidly, but the run of luck seemed to be all against the taller of the two players. At last he threw down his cards on the table with an oath and refused to go on. No, I'm hanged if I do, he said. I haven't had more than two of a suit for five hands. Never mind, said his comrade, as he gathered up his winnings. A few dollars one way or the other won't go very far after tonight's work. I was astonished at the rascal's audacity, but took care to keep my eyes fixed abstractedly upon the ceiling and drank my wine in as unconscious a manner as possible. I felt that Flanagan was looking towards me with his wolfish eyes to see if I had noticed the illusion. 
He whispered something to his companion, which I failed to catch. It was a caution, I suppose, for the other answered rather angrily, Nonsense! Why shouldn't I say what I like? Overcaution is just what would ruin us. I believe you want it not to come off, said Flanagan. You believe nothing of the sort, said the other, speaking rapidly and loudly. You know as well as I do that when I play for a stake I like to win it. But I won't have my words criticized and cut short by you or any other man. I have as much interest in our success as you have. More, I hope. He was quite hot about it, and puffed furiously at his cigar for some minutes. The eyes of the other ruffian wandered alternately from Dick Merton to myself. I knew that I was in the presence of a desperate man. The quiver of my lip might be the signal from him to plunge a weapon into my heart, but I betrayed more self-command than I should have given myself credit for under such trying circumstances. As to Dick, he was as immovable and apparently as unconscious as the Egyptian Sphinx. End of section 13